0: shall possess his renewed land. The hateful brother is humiliated in judgment, but God's reconciled people shall repossess his renewed land. So we're going to look at Obadiah this evening, and it's going to be a bit of work, but I think there is much profit for us in this book, and I've got excited studying it. I hope that you too will get excited with me as we learn together. Let's bow our heads again in a word of prayer, and we'll read it together and consider what God's Word has to say to us this evening. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your Word, and Lord, we are sometimes baffled by parts of it. Perhaps some of us, myself included, have wondered about words and prophecies such as Obadiah and what it means for us. And Lord, I pray this evening that you might bring clarity to a book such as this, a prophecy which is not simply for your old covenant people, but is for us. It's part of all of Scripture which has been breathed out by you and is profitable for us, your people, and points us to your Son, Jesus Christ, and teaches us how we ought to live in a way that honors him. And so God, I ask for your aid this evening, knowing that it is only by your grace that any eternal good could come out of this evening's service that we rely upon the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to make us more like Christ, to lift us up in faith, to convict us of indwelling sin, and to point us... In living a life pleasing to you, and equip us and empower us to do that. And so, God, we pray this evening that your Spirit would bring clarity to your Word and would help us and fill us this time and in this place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Obadiah. Let's read this prophecy in full one chapter, and so we'll consider it all together. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty, lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed... Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and many shall be dismayed, tomorrow, but every man be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever." on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gates people in the day of their calamity do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity do not off in the day of his calamity do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations as you have done It shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of Canaan as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This is what we shall consider this evening. Now perhaps for some of us we come to Esau and we wonder what in the world is going on. We hear words and names that we've never heard before. We don't know who Obadiah is. We don't know what's going on in the background. We don't know where some of these places are. That's uh, why I asked A.J. earlier to just start us off by reading about Jacob and Esau at the very beginning. I mean, that's you might say it begins even earlier than that with the promises made before beforehand to Abraham and Isaac and even before Abraham but uh, but certainly when it comes to Jacob and Esau that is the beginning God says to Rebekah two nations are in your womb right from conception these two brothers twin brothers Jacob and Esau are battling within the womb she can feel within that within herself and of course there's no ultrasound to confirm what's really going on inside. And God says, there's two nations in your room. Two boys are going to come out. And they'll be at odds with each other. And the older shall serve the younger. And of course, Esau comes out first. And Jacob comes out second. We learn of how Jacob uh, takes the opportunity to deceive Esau out of his inheritance back in the Old Testament it would be very normal for the firstborn to receive either a greater portion of inheritance, a double portion is part of the Jewish law in the, in the Old Testament, or some cultures would even give the firstborn the entire inheritance. And Esau trades it up for a bowl of stew in a moment of weakness. He shows contempt for the promise of God and the inheritance, his Privileged position as the firstborn of Isaac, and Jacob gets the inheritance. Later, of course, Jacob deceives him out of his blessing as well. And Esau is enraged. He wants to kill Jacob. And so Esau goes off and he starts his own kingdom, his own dynasty, in the land of Seir, which would be south of the Dead Sea, in kind of the arid hill country there, Um, south of the Dead Sea. He starts a kingdom of his own. Esau is a rugged man. He's a a hairy hunter, a mountain man, red-haired, red-blooded, red-hot in his anger. He marries two Canaanite women and um, has sons afterwards, and they soon have a kingdom in those rugged mountains south of the Dead Sea. And later on, when Israel leaves Egypt to go to their own possession, what does Edom do? They refuse passage to Israel. They say, no, you're not coming through our land. Esau uh, won't even give them food or water. Israel says, we'll come through. We won't even drink anything. We won't touch anything. We just want to walk on through. Edom says, Absolutely not. They come out with swords to their border and say, no way, you're not coming through here. So what does Israel do? They don't wipe them out. They do that to Moab, but they go around and try to go through Moab. Moab won't let them either. And so God has them fight against Moab instead of fighting against Edom. Why? Because Edom is their brother nation. And in Deuteronomy, written after Numbers in that situation, God actually says, You shall not hate an Edomite. He is your brother. Even though Edom treated Israel in such a way, when they went to inherit their own land, God tells his people not to hate them, and of course rather they are to love them. To love their neighbor as as themselves. And so we come to Obadiah with this historical backdrop leading up. Some would uh, debate the exact situation that um, Obadiah is uh, prophesying into. Many people would suggest that this is right after the Babylonian invasion. And some people have been taken into into exile from Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been sacked. Temple has been destroyed and people... Are brought into exile. Uh, an alternative possibility, which I would lean toward myself, is that this is an earlier, uh, an earlier attack on Jerusalem, not as devastating, but nonetheless, there are some exiles, and there is um, an attack made. People are killed, and Edom helps out Israel's enemies. And uh, And part of the reason I think it could be that situation instead is because one, uh, there's a, a man by the name of Obadiah prophesying during that time, who you read about in 1 Kings chapter 18, and uh, and also because Jeremiah borrows from Obadiah in chapter 49, which would seem to have to come afterwards, rather than being a contemporary of Obadiah. So all that's to say. The setting exactly of this prophecy is a little bit debated. Who Obadiah is exactly might be debated as well, or unknown. But nonetheless, the message of this uh, prophecy is clear otherwise. We're going to look through the prophecy in three sections. God's judgment, from verses 1 through 9. God's indictment. Verses 10 through 14. And lastly, God's allotment, verses 15, all the way through the end in verse 21. God's judgment upon Edom to start, verses 1 through 9. The Lord promises humiliation for the hateful brother. The Lord promises humiliation for the hateful brother. See, God, in verse 2, summons the nations, rise up for battle against her. He is calling the nations of the world around to fight against Edom. And we start to see pretty quickly what's going on and why. We'll look at the why a little bit into uh, the second section. But one huge factor here is the pride of Edom. See, God says, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. This is a pride issue with Edom, and so God's judgment will be a a humbling, or you might say a humiliating experience. See, we can speak of humbling as something we do voluntarily, and we should humble ourselves before the Lord. But this is, this is not voluntary. Edom has not humbled itself before the Lord, and so the Lord will bring humbling. He will bring humiliation. Whether Edom likes it or not, there will be uh, devastation in Edom that brings it low from its lofty height. He says in verse 3, You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So this is the Lord coming in judgment to humble, to humiliate the pride of Edom. That is God's judgment. Now, does anyone know, again, I wonder if any of the children could jump at this first. This is a little bit of a hard one. Does anyone know where Edom would be located in the world today? And here is a hint. It's, It's in a country that's named after a nearby river. Kids? Any adults? Kevin? Jordan. Jordan, exactly. The Jordan River is, of course, uh, right in that area, and it would be a little bit north and west of Edom. Edom would be kind of closer to the southern portion of Jordan. Well, within Jordan, I won't get into more trivia, I don't want to <laughs> take too long to asking questions, um, but... uh uh, I was going to ask, does anyone know what the, the major landmark of Jordan is? Well, the major land I won't, I won't, uh, I won't bother you with that one, although someone might know. Uh, it's Petra. Petra. Petra, I mean, I, I went to Egypt when I was in uh, grade 11, and, and so I learned a little bit about Petra because we were considering going there. But Petra is quite an amazing historical uh, landmark. It's an ancient city carved into rock out in Jordan. And what's so fascinating about Petra is they've got all of these tombs and homes and also aqueducts that go through the rock. They're able to contain all this water. And, um, and because they could contain all the water in the desert, they're actually able to not just survive, but to thrive there in this arid, rugged hill country. And uh, it was along a major trade route, and so it became quite a uh, prosperous little place there out in this rugged territory. And much of it, uh, you can still see, I mean at least part of it, there's ruins that are still there of this civilization that was once carved into the rock. And um, I never knew this before, but in preparing for this sermon, I came to realize, okay, Edom is actually in Jordan and And Petra would have been part of their territory. And in fact, where it says, you who live in the clefts of the rock, you may have a footnote like I do that says uh, the clefts of Selah or Selah, however you pronounce that. And I think that footnote is probably the better translation because Selah was an Edomite city, which literally just means rock, Um, But that city is mentioned in other scriptures and translated as such. And uh, it's possible that Sila may be the same place as Petra or actually uh, a similar place to Petra. Petra also means rock, just in a different language, uh, Greek. And, um, And so I say all that because if you know anything about Petra, it gives you a bit of an image as to what's being described here, this... Pride of Edom. They live in the clefts of Selah, or the clefts of the rock, in this lofty dwelling. And they say, who will bring me down to the ground? This fortress built into the rock with aqueducts and with caverns and homes for thousands and thousands of people. It's a prosperous place in the arid country. It's something that you might boast about. And you look at it now and just think, wow, that's pretty impressive that they would have the skill and the strength and the intelligence and the toughness to not just live there but even thrive in a place like that. Well, when we become so caught up with our own accomplishments and our own intelligence and our own fortitude... We stop trusting in the Lord, and that pride is our downfall. We start to trust in other things, trust in ourselves. Self-reliance is a common sort of phrase or um, theme of our modern world. That is an idolatrous temptation, the same sort of temptation that Edom faced Trust in themselves, to trust also in their allies. As he goes on further, verse 7 all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They thought that their allies could also be their strength. Maybe these are the same allies who invaded Jerusalem. God's saying, these allies will turn on you. You think that they're your friends? They're going to come for you next. You help them destroy Jerusalem, then what's going to happen? They're coming for you. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, New Testament says. And so Edom was deceived and trusted in its allies, trusted in its strength, became proud, became haughty. They trusted in their own intellect, in their own uh, military power. He says further on, verse 8 and 9, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? There's their trust and their own intellect. He says further, And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. All these things that Edom trusted in and became proud of is going to be their downfall, and God is coming in judgment to humble them, to humiliate them. It says in verse 5 and 6 regarding the severity of this judgment, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed... Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. You might wonder, what's he getting at here? This is maybe a different illustration from our modern day, to put the point home. If we came home from vacation and found that our house was robbed and we lost our TV, we lost our money or lost our laptop or something like that, that would be, you know, devastating, but we'd get on with our lives, wouldn't we? But if we got home and not only that was gone, but, you know, our fridge and our stove were gone, something that's kind of impractical to rob someone of because it's just so big and heavy, they take your fridge, they take your stove, they take your couches, they take the picture frames off your walls. Why they would want the picture frames, I don't know, but they take the picture frames, they take the outlet covers, they take your doors, they take, uh, you name it, they take it. It's all gone. That would be absolutely, your whole world would be turned upside down. You couldn't even function. And that's the sort of point that Obadiah is making here. Grape gatherers, if they, if they, Come, they leave gleanings at least, don't they? Thieves come and plunder. Wouldn't they just take what they can carry? Wouldn't they just take enough for themselves? Well, that is not the degree that Esau is going to be destroyed. It will be far worse than that. His treasures will be sought out, totally plundered. And you might think, wow, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, the kindness and the severity of God. And we see God's kindness in his mercy towards sinners like us, and yet we also get a picture of the severity of his judgment when we read a prophecy like this. And when we speak here of Esau, we're speaking outside of ourselves, Well, you need to understand that for any who exalt themselves against God, any who puff themselves up with pride or trust in their own strength, their own riches, their own uh, allegiances, political alignments, their own nation, their own bank account, any of these things, you start trusting in any of these things, you start trusting in yourself rather than find security in God, you are going to be in for a rude awakening like Esau was. The judgment of God is coming. And you know, there's sometimes people who we might be afraid to share the gospel with, people who you might think are kind of like Esau, rugged mountain men, burly and hairy, and maybe they are proud, and maybe they are intimidating, and maybe they are intelligent or strong, and you think... Well, I'm not sure that I can share the gospel with somebody like that because I don't know how they might respond. Well, brother or sister, the wrath of God is coming upon the world, coming upon such a woman, such a man, as you might be intimidated by. And they need to be warned, as Obadiah warns here, that they might repent as Nineveh did, that they might find... Mercy at the throne of God. And so we hear of God's judgment here in these first nine verses. And we come to the second section and we get a bit more clarity as to what exactly has Edom done to warrant this type of severe judgment. What has gone on here? Verses 10 through 14 explain a little bit better what has happened. Aside from the pride, what has Edom done that God would judge them like this? God's indictment comes next. The Lord pronounces condemnation for their actions. And, and if you're a note taker, you might say there's three subpoints here regarding the actions of Edom. They are first apathetic, second, Arrogant and, third, adversarial toward their brother. God's Word uses this phrase, your brother. You might think, oh, they're nations. They're not brothers. Well, the Scriptures use this phrase a couple of times here, your brother, Jacob. Because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob, that really drives this home, how much of a betrayal this is from Edom. This is your brother. And in the Old Testament law as well, that, that phrase is used when God speaks to his people, don't abhor the Edomites, they're your brother. And we need to think about that as well as we apply this as Christians, how we should love our own brothers and sisters in Christ as well as our families. And something I found very interesting is that that illustration used before regarding the eagle, the eagle which makes its home in the, the rocky cliffs. I looked up eagle on Wikipedia just because I thought I didn't know much about eagles, so might as well learn a little bit about an eagle. And um, I found out that a lot of species of eagles lay two eggs at a time. And of the two eggs, they typically hatch a few days apart, some days apart. And the first eagle, when it hatches, it starts to grow more quickly right out of the shell. And when the other one comes out, the first eagle pecks the second eagle until that eagle gets injured and dies and, or starves to death because it can't get food. And the biologists are saying, we don't know why it does this. There's plenty of food for everyone. Um, it's not, uh, we're short on resources type of thing. And they even said something like, uh, there's a quote that I was looking at. He said something like, this is um, problematic for the evolutionary biologist. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, Why does the eagle kill its own little brother? There's no explanation, except for the eagles too are part of a fallen, created order, corrupted by sin. And there's no reason for the eagle to kill its brother, just like there's no reason for Cain to kill Abel. In fact, they call that Cainism in evolutionary biology. What the eagle does to his brother eagle is cainism. And um, there's a quote here. Let me just read you the quote. This is so fascinating to me. Eagles lay their eggs several days apart rather than all at one time. As a result, the chicks hatch at different times, and the firstborn almost always has a size advantage over its siblings. In some eagle species, the eldest uses this advantage to kill any nest mates in what is known as cain and able behavior or simply cainism. And I could go on with the quote, but I'll stop there. I found that very fascinating. And, you know, I wonder, too, if uh, Obadiah and his, uh, and his audience would have been aware of this, because this is exactly what Edom is doing to Israel. It's taking advantage of its brother in a point of weakness, doing violence to its own brother like an eagle would. And first, in verse 11, it says, you stood aloof on the day, on the day that the strangers carried off his wealth. You stood aloof. So God's first point of indictment is that they didn't do anything. They're apathetic. They were a bystander. You know, we say innocent bystanders sometimes. Is a bystander really innocent if they don't do anything to stop the crime when they could? They don't say anything. They don't try to do anything. They don't call the police. They don't intervene. They don't defend. They just stand there. While well, such a bystander is not innocent. That's God's first indictment against oh, uh, Edom. You stood aloof on that day when invaders came. Strangers carried off his wealth. Foreigners entered his gates, cast lots for Jerusalem. And here's what he says. You were like one of them. Innocent bystander, in God's words, is as guilty as the perpetrator if the innocent bystander stands there and does nothing. Does not intervene, does not defend, does not call for help, does not try to stop, do anything at all. Often, we think that we can get away with not doing the right thing because nobody really notices. Nobody really pays attention to the things we don't do. Typically, we just think about don't do this, don't do that. Well, there's things that we should do that we don't always do, and nobody notices what we don't do, but God does. And God will bring those things into judgment as well. We need to be people of action who do the right thing when we need to do the right thing, regardless of what that is, even if it requires us to risk our own necks, we should come to the defense of our brother. So that's one point of indictment against Edom. The second point, it just gets worse and worse as we look through these verses. Verse 12. Do not gloat over the day of your brother. Again, that phrase, your brother. In the day of his misfortune, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity, there is this boasting and this celebration of the downfall of his brother Israel that Edom is participating in. And you know, Israel, at many times throughout its history, is judged by God in this way for their sin, their idolatry, and so on. Um, But even when someone deserves some sort of misfortune that comes upon them, we should not rejoice over their suffering, over their misery, over their affliction. It should not bring us glee. It should not be a point of boasting for us. It should be an opportunity for us to mourn and to pray for their repentance In the New Testament, you have that parable of the two brothers, and the one brother goes and lives a wayward life, and then he repents, and what does the other brother do? Well, he gets upset. You know, brothers and sisters, when we have a fellow sibling in Christ, a brother or sister in Christ who is caught up in some sin, caught up in some misery, we should not ever be happy. We should pray for them. We should mourn with them. We should sometimes have to even rebuke them. We should call them back to the Lord. But never, ever should we gloat over them. Never, ever should we rejoice in that day. We should seek their restoration. Even, say, there's times where churches need to bring a wayward Christian into discipline. But the goal is always restoration, restoration of the the brother who has offended, seeking forgiveness, seeking reconciliation, seeking repentance, always, always, not this. So the second point of indictment is Esau is arrogant toward the affliction of his brother. He's apathetic and he's arrogant. Third, and this is the worst of all, Esau is adversarial. And what I mean by that is Esau joins in. It's not not enough that Esau would stand by and do nothing. It's not enough that Esau would laugh on the sidelines. Esau joins in. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother. And then later on, the end of verse 13, do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Esau joins in the pillaging. And perhaps that's why God says that they will lose their possessions. Esau joins in the pillaging. And and to make matters worse, verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Esau stood by as people were fleeing for their lives. And they preyed upon these people. They picked them off. They cut them down. They handed them over. This is not what a brother should do. And you know, brothers and sisters, this is shocking. And yet, what we do sometimes with, not with our actions, but our words, is we can cut down other brothers and sisters in Christ, can't we? You call someone an idiot. You call someone stupid. You call someone a coward. You call someone all sorts of other words I probably shouldn't say. And we cut them down. We don't build them up. And how different is that than what Esau has done to his brother here? We should be seeking not to harm or to hurt our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but to build them up, whether by rebuke or consolation or encouragement or admonition, never by insult, never by slander, never by gossip, to build up. This is what brothers and sisters should do. And so we come from God's indictment and God's judgment to the last section here, and this is where things begin to turn around. And we have a message of hope. Not so much for Edom as much as it is for Israel, but nonetheless, a message of hope from verses 15 to 21. God's allotment. God promises the repossession of a renewed land to his reconciled people. So God says this, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. There's your explanation for how those first two sections line up. All that God says he would do in judgment, he's bringing Edom's deeds back upon his own head. To go on from there, it's not just Edom who should be concerned. He says, As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations, all the nations, not just Edom, all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. This is the wrath of God, not Simply in time upon Edom. But this is what we might see described of hell for all the nations at the end of the ages when God makes all things right, when God brings all deeds into judgment, and nothing is left unexamined, no wrong is left unpunished. All things are brought into judgment. And so God says all the nations will bear their sin. They will drink it, drink in the wrath of God. Of course, that is what's referred to in this drinking. And of course, that is reminiscent of a passage we're more familiar with, isn't it? We look at the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ is told to Drink the cup of God's wrath right down to the bottom. You see, that is the only way that there can be an escape. Because verse 17 speaks of an escape. It doesn't tell us exactly how that escape is worked out in terms of atonement. We know that from the New Testament. But how would any escape the wrath of God against the nations? By going to the Lord taking refuge in the Lord by escaping to Him, because Christ drunk the judgment of God, the wrath of God for us, those who trust in Him, when He suffered and died on the cross, when He was betrayed. Those who ate bread with Him, such as Judas, betrayed Him, and He suffered judgment upon that cross in our place that we might Live That we might be a part of restored Mount Zion as it's spoken of here in verse 17. In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. To be in the holy dwelling place of God. You see some people had been exiled, maybe everyone depending on uh, this is the Babylonian invasion or not that's in the background here God is bringing his people back to his dwelling place but it's going to be different it's not going to be a land mixed with sin and idolatry it's not going to be a land a land under a corrupt leader it's not going to be a land that is assaulted by foes on every side it's going to be holy It says, the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And and not in a temporary way. Not in a way where someone's going to come and plunder it all over again. There is a permanency here. He goes on to, in greater detail, not in verse 18, but further along there, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. And he goes on and on and on. You might wonder, where these places? The point is... God's people will possess the land in a way greater than ever before. It's expanding. You know, when they first got the land, they, they conquered, but then there are still foes to drive out. They never really drove them out, and eventually they started losing ground. And, you know, under David, there was some expansion, but, but it dwindled. And, and what God's saying here is that when, when his promise is fulfilled, it will be better than ever before. It will be glorious. It will be holy they will possess the land and foes will not take it. And, and I, I love the last word. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. God will be there. Unlike ever before. And the exiles will come back. It says, the exiles in Jerusalem, of Jerusalem or on Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. People will be brought back to the Lord to dwell with him in this holy place forever. And so you might wonder, well, when is this? When is this happening? speaks about saviors, plural, going up to Mount Zion. Well, of course, there are some you know, partial fulfillments of these promises when the Jews return to the land, say, at different points in their history, certainly um, coming back uh, after the exile uh, in part... But even when you read the books of, say, Ezra and Nehemiah, it's never really perfect, is it? It's never really that good. It's kind of a, it's kind of a dud. And you might wonder, so uh, what's so great about that then? Well, brothers and sisters, what we learn in the prophets is that there is this greater expo- expectation of a return from exile, which was not yet fulfilled and still isn't yet fulfilled which is coming not yet, not now, but in the future after the resurrection of the dead. When God raises all of His people up from the dead, He brings them from the four corners of the earth. He brings them into the new creation to live in His kingdom, in His presence like never before, when it's truly holy, truly holy, truly glorious, and He dwells with us in a way that we have inability to fathom, that is what they're looking forward to. And and any sort of saviors there may have been along the way are only imperfect portrayals of the great Savior, Jesus Christ, who brings us into His kingdom to dwell with Him forever. And so that is what we're looking forward to. And you know, this isn't just for... Israel, the Jewish people, who had been estranged, who had lost their possessions—this is for us too, brothers and sisters. So we read in the New Testament, we read of being co-heirs with Christ, as having having a, an inheritance kept in heaven for us. That's uh, imper—that's uh, um, sorry, undefiled, imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us. We read about a. Uh, as with Abraham in Romans chapter 4, he's an heir of the world. See, it's not just Canaan that we're going to inherit. It's, it's expansive. It's greater than that. It's the whole world, the new creation which we are looking forward to. All of God's people are looking forward to anyone who humbles himself and escapes the wrath, of, wrath to come through Jesus Christ by coming to the Lord. So maybe, um, maybe you're here today and you find yourself a bit more like Esau and have been proud, trusted in yourself, trusted in your own security, your own bank account, your own friendships, family, pride in your heart. Or maybe you're like Esau in that you've hated your brother hated your sister. You've rebelled against the Lord. You've laughed when other people have suffered. And you've cut down people with your words. See, you need to escape to the Lord from His wrath to come through Jesus Christ and find reconciliation in Him. And have this hope by trusting in the Lord and turning from sin. To have this hope to be in the holy place forever. And brothers and sisters, for those of us who have been saved and truly are brothers and sisters together, may we be characterized not by this sort of activity, this sort of animosity, but, but by Christian love. They'll know we are Christians by our love, the Scripture says, You'll know um, we're Christians by how we love one another. And we cannot be marked by this sort of um, hatred that you see in Edom. So may this be a reminder to us all of God's standard for us, of God, what, what God would have for us, and also a comfort that there is a day coming when such animosity, when such... Hatred, it will be no more. And we will be with God forever in the holy place. Praise God for that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word through the prophet Obadiah. And we ask God that you would humble our hearts before you. That you would make us more like your son who is our elder brother, and who laid his life down for us that we might live and brought us to be co-heirs with him of his possession. We pray, God, that you would help us to trust in him alone and to humble ourselves day by day before you, to be people of love.